Welcome to Life Solved, the podcast that looks at how University of Portsmouth research is changing our world. I'm John Worsey. June 2022 marks 40 years since the resolution of the Falklands War, where British and Argentinian forces faced off over a group of islands in the South Atlantic. The 14th of June sees four decades since the Argentinian surrender in a war that escalated rapidly. Although conflict on the ground lasted little over a month, 255 British and 649 Argentine soldiers were killed, and commemorations are taking place to remember them this year. In today's episode, I want to find out more about why this war happened, as well as the role Portsmouth Dockyard played in naval activity. We've brought together some of our top historians to discuss how this conflict has left a lasting legacy on British politics and naval policy. First, let's meet Dr. Ben Jones. He's a senior lecturer in naval history at the University of Portsmouth. He's based at the Royal Air Force College in Cranwell. My research interests are air power in the maritime environment, military logistics and British defence policy since 1945. And there's something that sparked my interest in the in researching the Falklands. I, I went there in 2007 with a force development activity with Royal Air Force College Cranwell. The Falkland Islands are a cluster of islands in the South Atlantic Ocean. In the mid-19th century, they were declared a colony of the British Empire. But Argentina maintained they should have sovereignty over the territory. So why did Argentinian forces invade in 1982? Ben explained the political context of these events. We obviously focus here on the Argentine military dictatorship, the right-wing junta which had ruled Argentina since 1976. They had ruthlessly repressed any opposition in the country and tens of thousands of opponents had disappeared. And therefore, by the time you get to 1982, they are extremely unpopular and it is no coincidence that the largest protest in Buenos Aires against the junta occurred only three days prior to the invasion. In terms of the United Kingdom, Britain had almost no interest in the Falklands. They were economically worthless. They were militarily indefensible. There were no plans to reinforce the garrison, which then was only 35 Royal Marines and an occasional visit by an ice patrol ship. And there were certainly no plans to retake them, which many experts thought was completely impossible. And indeed, Britain had engaged in the United Nations with talks with Argentina regarding possible joint sovereignty or future, future sovereignty of the islands with Argentina. Of course, all this ends when Argentina actually invades. And it's a kind of a classic example where the Argentines get a very different reaction than they had thought from all the years of negotiations because they had stepped over the line and undertaken military, direct military action and invaded them. And the British government was faced with the situation that, you know, the British territory was under foreign occupation for the first time since the Channel Islands in May 1945. And therefore, there is the swift military response Britain then initiated. Clearly, to begin with, I think it was hoped there would be a diplomatic solution that the many people couldn't believe the Argentines internationally had invaded and they were condemned in the United Nations, resolution passed against them in the Security Council. But of course, if the junta withdrew, then it would fall. 
which is what happened when they were defeated, given their unpopularity. A key boundary in all the operations was the weather. So they wanted to get the operations completed by mid-June, after which it was felt it was going to be too bad for the Navy to operate in the South Atlantic, for the troops on the islands to be supported properly, so that when key decisions had to be made, for example, the need to land on the Falklands, the government agreed with the military decision planners. Dr. Matthew Heaslip is course leader for the MA in Naval History. My specialism tends to focus on the, the literal environments, the interactions between navies and the shore, whether in coastal or riverine environments throughout the 20th century. He outlined how this war played out on sea and land. Amphibious warfare at its most basic is the transfer of force from sea to land or the projection of power from sea to land. And it could take a variety of formats this is perhaps one of the more classic examples of going somewhere and, in this case, seizing back territory, although it could be used to proactively seize territory. That was very much the traditional so-called British way in warfare from previous centuries. Uh, so it become less common during the, the era of decolonization post-Suez uh, crisis as UK defence policy became increasingly focused on the Cold War, as the British Army on the Rhine, anti-submarine warfare in the North Atlantic, uh, the deterrent, of course, uh, continuous at sea nuclear deterrent, but it retains that expeditionary capability. And so in this case, it was the, the transportation of large numbers of uh, Marines and soldiers, along with a variety of supporting assets and logistics capabilities thousands of miles down the North and South Atlantic to seize back the Falkland Islands and uh, South Georgia Islands as well. What's more, this had to be coordinated at a moment's notice. They had a week's warning from intelligence that there would be an invasion, but there were no plans to retake the islands. And I think critically, from the political point of view, it, there did have to be a quick military reaction whether it would be needed, whether the Argentines would withdraw, but there did need to be a quick military response, which is also the credit of the UK armed forces at the time. They were able to put this together when there was, say, no overall plan and no many detailed plans to retake the islands at all. It was probably quite a clear-cut conflict in terms of the reasons Britain went to war in 1982. British territory had been invaded People who wanted to remain British, therefore wanted to be liberated by the UK armed forces. Dr. Melanie Bassett is a history research fellow here at the University of Portsmouth. She explained why the Falklands War was also an ideological turning point for Britain. The Falklands War is really seen as the last breath of the British Empire in lots of ways. Britain's empire had been decolonizing since the end of the Second World War, starting with India, and then various other states across the globe were starting to become independent or gain independence, or they were moving towards a, a commonwealth rather than an empire structure and relationship with, with Britain. So the Falklands as being a territory which was recognised as British with British citizens became a point of contention and it was something that certainly that 
mustered some patriotism eventually <laughs> in the war. And so it was definitely conceived in the popular press as being a conflict, which was the empire strikes back. It was sort of seen as one of the last hurrahs of the empire, really, in terms of defence and, and, and war of, within the British Empire. Well, I think striking from uh, a lot of the veterans' testimonies and uh, oral histories recounting the events is just how few of them knew where the Falklands were in the first place. The number of submariners who refer to leaving Gibraltar and not being sure whether they needed to go left or right uh, and getting surprised where they were going in the end. But then once on the way, uh, just simply seeing it as a job needed to be done. So no hard feelings towards the their opponent and afterwards considerable sympathy for those that were lost on both sides. Although it was a war happening thousands of miles away from the UK, the rapid escalation of events shocked the world. The sinking of the warships brought a loss of life as well as a shaking of confidence. I mean, in terms of casualties, it did escalate very quickly once the British operations to retake the islands had begun on the 1st of May with aircraft shot down you then had the sinking of the Argentine cruiser, the General Belgrano, by HMS Conqueror uh, on May the 2nd. And then, as it were, in retaliation, an Argentine Air Force attack using Super A-10-Dard jet with Exocet missiles, which disabled, and it later sank, uh, HMS Sheffield on the 4th of May. So if anyone had any illusions as to what this conflict might be like, I think there was soon dissuaded of those by these significant events. I think it's worth emphasising as well that in the case of HMS Sheffield, that was the, the first loss of a Royal Navy warship since the Second World War. So very symbolic uh, in its, its, its loss. Ben says that not only did this raise doubts in a moment, but also left a legacy of questions to be addressed following the war. Some of the events during the conflict, I think, need to be fully understood, maybe most notably the sinking of the, the General Belgrano, the Argentine cruiser, which was sailing away from the task force when she was torpedoed and was outside the 200-mile exclusion zone, which Britain had imposed. And exclusion zones are imposed not just for your opponent, but also for neutrals, for airliners and for cruise ships and those sort of things in a conflict zone. But the Royal Navy had warned the Argent that Britain had warned the Argentines on the 23rd of April before the effort to retake the islands began that any approach by any Argentine forces, air or naval, outside the 12 mile Argentine territorial waters would meet with the appropriate response. So the actual sinking of the ship was straightforward as far as the Royal Navy was concerned, was a humiliation for the Argentine Navy because they were completely unprepared. The watertight doors were open. There were really few countermeasures that they took. But that produced a huge volume of correspondence and questions in Parliament about the sinking of the ship after the war. In spite of its mighty reputation, Melanie says that in 1982, the British Navy was still not ready for a conflict of this scale and had to rapidly find resources. What you'll see during the Falklands crisis is that ships that were going in for maintenance and repair and ships that were being mothballed were taken out to be refitted. And then there was also the dockyards work in terms of ships taken up from trade. So they were actually requisitioning merchant ships, oil tankers, 
roll on roll off ferries, ferries that would help to carry the troops and the equipment and to provide work as hospital ships. All of that was sort of done. So they were refitted in the dockyards. Their decks were made into helicopter pads. They had to be refitted for refueling at sea and then also to have the, the navigation systems that the, the Royal Navy required. So it really did underline during the Falklands conflict that we weren't as ready to project our naval might as that we could have been. So it sort of started to prompt questions about our defence, although, you know, there was still the imperative. And to make the defence cuts and some vessels got a reprieve, the dockyard got part of a reprieve, but ultimately the capabilities were cut down and, and things were reassessed. As Melanie said, these events turned the fortunes of people working in dockyards for a time, and no more so than here in Portsmouth's Royal Dockyards. I'm a trustee of the Portsmouth Royal Dockyard Historical Trust, and I'm sort of interested in the general history of the dockyard as well. So, um, you know, Falklands was particularly important because of the Defence Review of 1981, which was conceiving the Royal Dockyard's work as being more fleet maintenance and repair, especially at Portsmouth, they were going to run down Portsmouth Dockyard quite considerably. So the Falklands conflict coming as it did on the call to get the ships ready came on the exact same day that men started to actually get their redundancy letters, which meant they then had to rally around to try and get the fleet and the task force to full capacity before they sailed to the South Atlantic. It became a sort of bargaining chip as well for the, the Royal Dockyard to show that they were still needed and that there was more of a role for the Royal Navy than maybe had been considered previously. Portsmouth played a, a huge role because Portsmouth is seen very much as a home of the Royal Navy. So um, contemporary pictures, you would see people lining the waterfront, watching the ships go out. A lot of them were from naval families. They were possibly waving their sons, husbands, uncles away, not knowing what was was coming really. So I think, you know, it's quite interesting to, to think about the fact that this was being very, very closely watched by Portsmouth as a, as a Royal Naval city because there were so many vested interests and, and who was on board those ships and what would happen to the Falklands. Nevertheless, the defence cutbacks Melanie mentioned would still eventually reduce the naval forces. Matthew explained. The Falklands War changed a lot of defence policy, at least in the short term. It brought a few more years. Still in the, the aftermath, though, Chatham Dockyard was subsequently closed down. There were reductions in the fleet that had been planned in 1981 with that defence review. So they were temporarily postponed, but still it, it only delayed the progression rather than halted it. So a lot of those plans from 1981 still happened. It was just staggered out over a, a longer period. The Royal Navy, at least in the short term, there's that boost, particularly to this, this more traditional form of, uh, of, of warfare. Although uh, if we look through to the present day, while there's the retention of expeditionary capabilities, so this ability to go and project force elsewhere, uh, and it, it was used during the Al Four Peninsula, for example, in the, the, the Second Gulf War, landing in southern Iraq. Is the retention of those capabilities is still seen as a, an important role of the Royal Navy. But nonetheless, the trajectory over the subsequent 40 years has still been a reduction in the fleet, 
a focus on defensive capabilities to avoid losing ships rather than necessarily the the capabilities to win a fight, to take a fight to the opponent. Lots of these elements of the Falklands were fed through to that thinking over the subsequent 40 years, even if it's not necessarily in the direction that the Navy might have expected in the immediate aftermath of the conflict. One of the, the things that came up quite a lot in the testimony, especially for the, the capital ships that were, were in harbour, was they were getting strafed by the air power of the Argentines. So definitely, I think it had a bearing on what they were able to, to do in the future and what, and what they felt necessary to make sure they defended the ships. And so there was a lot more air defence thought about afterwards in terms of the capabilities of the ships. And very similar style to the Suez crisis, it, it once again reiterated the value of carrier air groups in providing forward cover. That uh, The long-term argument between the Royal Navy and the Royal Air Force was that the Royal Air Force could provide long-distance coverage from a few air bases around the world. And uh, in the Falklands, much as in the Suez beforehand, it showed that actually having, uh, in this case, uh, Harrier jump jets on the scene from carriers was incredibly useful for providing air defence, but also ground support. But even though today there are fewer ships in our Navy, the capabilities of present-day vessels are much more advanced. If we look at the aircraft carriers, Queen Elizabeth and Prince of Wales are, are in a whole new, much uh, stronger league compared to the carriers available at this point in time. A lot of the other surface and subsurface Vessels are also much more capable, but the simple numbers are not in, in favour of repeating operations like this. So while there's the ability to conduct expeditionary warfare, there wouldn't necessarily be the ability to sustain the losses seen during the Falklands War against an opponent with any form of real defensive capabilities. In June this year, people and organisations across the UK will unite to remember the conflict what it meant for families, lives and livelihoods at the time, and what it still means today. With many of the conflicts Britain has been involved with since the Second World War, as Ben noted, there's uh, often an element of controversy with them, but nonetheless they involved thousands of service personnel who uh, went and fought somewhere for what they believed to be right, and many of whom, in this case, either died or uh, were badly wounded in some cases. The first warships lost since the Second World War. The Falklands has its place within that post-war story of Britain, along with say, the Suez Crisis, Korean War, as, as key defining moments in reshaping Britain towards post-decolonized, post-imperial Britain, but also as it transitioned towards a post-Cold War Britain as well into the era of uh, the 1990s and, uh, and 2000s when uh, it's a very different Britain to the one that had been seen pre-Falklands and going back to the Second World War. So it's, it's a really pivotal moment in a transformative period of British history. In another role that I did, I actually interviewed war widows and some of those were war widows from the Falklands crisis. And war widows tend to get a little bit lost in the story of conflicts because if you look at something like Remembrance Day, you, you get a lot of the, the troops sort of marching towards the cenotaph and the wives and families are somewhat largely forgotten or they play a more background role and they live with that grief every day and you know, speaking to, to people that are still, you know, very, very affected. 
anecdotally, they didn't know where the, the Falklands was. It was an operation that their husbands were basically told, right, okay, you're mobilizing, off you go. Didn't know where they were going to go and where they were going to be. And so they're left with that legacy and, and sort of the anniversary as much as it's a, a time to commemorate what those, those very brave people did that went and fought in the war and the, the Argentine troops that also fought in the war. It's also worth thinking about the families that were left behind and, and thinking about that, the legacy of the, the children that never got to see their fathers and wives that never got to grow old with their, their loved ones. If you'd like to find out more about history here at the University of Portsmouth, you can follow our academics and their research on our website, port.ac.uk slash research. Next week, we'll be putting the work of Christina Scott under the microscope as she explains why bacteria isn't always bad. I want to fly the flag of all of the things that have been misunderstood. So we refer to Legionella as bad because of the connotations with disease, but it must be doing some good for it to be there and it to be uh, surviving. Follow this podcast on your favourite app so you don't miss it. And if you like this episode of Life Solved, why not share it with a friend and start a conversation? See you next time.